physical traits like weight show about 70% heritability on average, meaning 70% of the differences between people and weight are due to inherited DNA differences. And for physiological traits, it's more like um, 60%. But the amazing thing is for psychology, if you go across the hundreds of traits that have been studied, personality, psychopathology, cognitive traits, on average, the average heritability estimate is just about exactly 50%. And that means half of the differences between people are due to inherited DNA differences. It also means half of the differences between people are not due to inherited DNA differences. That's about the environment. But there's also a lot more it tells us about the environment. But it is, it is dramatic, though, to think that we've gone from not considering genetics to realizing that genetics is far and away the most important systematic source of individual differences in psychology. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 175. And this episode is with Robert Plowman, who is MRC Research Professor of Behavioral Genetics at King's College London. And Robert has published over 800 papers, is among the 100 most cited psychologists of the 20th century, and was also appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire for his research, all of which is very cool, very cool, and very nice to have on the CV. But he's, he's best known for his work on twin studies and behavioral genetics, a career's worth of which is contained in his book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And there's a link to that book in the description. But in this episode, we discuss the distinction between molecular and quantitative genetics, how I've got, I've got two beasts right here that are, are vying for attention, how one researches the, the question of nature versus nurture, the extent to which uh, genetics determines human behavior, uh, the controversies about these lines of research, because there are many, and what to expect in the next 10 years of behavioral genetics. And if you have any questions for Robert, please leave a comment uh, with those questions on YouTube, or I think you can do that on Spotify, because it's always possible that we could do a follow-up on some further issues, because I find genetics a very interesting topic, and I'm sure many of you do as well. So likes, comments, reviews, comments, as I just mentioned, subscribes, follows, all these things are great, very helpful. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Robert. You write in the beginning of Blueprint that you fell in love with behavioral genetics in the early 1970s, but then waited 30 years to write the book. And before we get into the nitty gritty of that intervening period, I just wanted to know what was going on at the time you began your research that so captured your attention about this line of work? I mean, what were the questions you were asking already at that yeah, time? That's a, that's a great question. It's a good way to start this too, because people might find it hard to believe. But back when I was in, 
uh, I was an undergraduate in psychology. I never heard the word genetics as an undergraduate psychology major in the late 60s. And so I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, and they had the only course in the world in psychology on behavioral genetics. And we're back in those days in graduate school. I don't know if it's still like that, but in the first year or even two, you had to take compulsory courses that made you learn about all these areas of psychology from neuroscience to clinical and personality and everything. And at the University of Texas at Austin and nowhere else in the world was there this course you had to take with 40 other new PhD students called behavioral genetics. I didn't even know what it was, but I was so floored by it. You know, we had some of the top people there, Gardner Lindsay, who used to be at Harvard, was hired by Texas and told he could have anything he wanted. That was in the Sputnik era, you know, where they were putting huge amounts of money into university. And he said he wanted behavioral genetics, even though he had actually been a psychoanalyst um, by training. And he was past president of the APA. And he said, well, what I want is behavioral genetics. So he hired about all the behavioral geneticists in the world, all six of them. And they were there at Texas. So it was, and it, so the, the interesting thing about it to me is, I, I read their books and I heard lectures from them and I just was floored by it, you know, by the power of it, especially at that time, it was mostly animal studies where you can manipulate genes and environments. And, um, you know, it just, it was stunning to me that I had never heard about it before. And here's this very powerful area of study that had been ignored. I liked that too. I mean, it was new. It wasn't just turning the crank a little bit on something, but here's the thing. I, I knew right away that's what I wanted to do because, you know, it just I could see that there were applications all over the place. But there were 39 other students in that class and not one of them became interested in behavioral genetics. So, you know, what is that about? But so many people, when they look back on their career, they, you know, they talk about these sliding door moments. And, you know, it's wonderful it happens. You know, if you, if you find something you love to do, th there can't be anything better in life than that. You know, where you would do it for a hobby, even if you weren't getting paid to do it. To get paid to do this for 50 years is just kind of mind-boggling to me. And it gets better and better, too, now with the DNA revolution. So it was really interesting because at that time in psychology in the 70s, psychology was completely environmentalistic. By that, I mean, you are what you learn. You know, learning theory was king. And, you know, it was thought that everything that you are is what you learned and particularly what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. I mean, schizophrenia at the time in the textbooks, you were told that was caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life, which is so wicked because, you know, that's deterministic, but you don't know your kid's schizophrenic till they're in their late teens or early twenties. And then you're told it's what you did in the first few years of life. You can't go back and change that. But the worst thing is it's totally wrong. There's absolutely no evidence for that. Whereas schizophrenia is one of the more heritable psychiatric disorders. So I guess it was sort of some aspect of my personality that that appealed to, you know, the idea that people weren't talking about this, yet it seemed so important. So, you know, I was just excited about it from the start. And I've, I've been very lucky to be there when everything's happening, you know, from the beginnings of behavioral genetics in psychology to the point where we were making big discoveries and people were beginning to accept it. And then with the DNA revolution coming along in the last 10, 15 years, 
you know, it's changing everything. It's like the second stage of a rocket. So um, it's just, you know, I can't, I can't retire because now that we're finding genes, DNA differences themselves that predict behavior, um, it's just much too exciting to think about leaving just when the party's beginning, you know? So it's really great. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, um, partly what you said is I waited 30 years. Well, I waited 30 years to write a book about it. I had a publisher, actually the father of the publisher who published my book, which blueprint, how DNA makes us who we are. Um, I had this agent who, um, back then in the seventies tried to convince me to write a book on this. And I thought, you know, it just wasn't right because I was too junior. It was very, uh, dangerous really politically and professionally to talk about genetics. And instead I thought, do the research, you know, and then eventually as the data builds up, you'll convince people that genetics is important. And I do find it's better, you know, to, I, I think if you, the people who want to argue with you, you see this on podcasts a lot. You don't change people's minds very much by arguing back. I think, you know, I think it's better just to, keep the data coming and and it's it's worked if you take a very long view on it. I mean, I think most psychologists now do accept that genetics is a very important part, uh, a, a part of the explanation of why people differ in psychopathology, cognitive abilities, school achievement, personality, everything. So it's it's been, you know, um, gratifying to me to see genetics go from being kind of uh, what was uh, there was antagonism toward it. It wasn't just, you know, ignorance. There, back in the 70s and 80s, people were really hostile to the notion of genetics. And now some of the top psychology papers uh, are genetics papers. And probably per capita, there's more funds going into genetic research because it's a really progressive area of research in the philosophy of science sense, you know, that you you build on previous research and it isn't like, I don't know if you experienced this, but in psychology, I, I'm a, I was trained as a developmental psychologist and I do find a lot of it is fads. You know, they don't, it's not progressive in the sense that one thing leads to the next and you build a foundation for a field of research. Instead, it seems more like there are fads and people run that way and then they get bored with it and then they, something else is important, which is tough on students because as a PhD student, you're in one of those fads. And by the time you get done, no, but it's past its sell-by date, you know? So I, I really do like that progressive aspect of, of genetics. So anyway, I'm babbling on too much here about it, but it is a, a good way to start though, you know, to remember how environmentalistic psychology was 30, 40 years ago. And I, I, I assume you share my view, and there is some research to back this up, that psychologists now are much more accepting. They have a much more balanced view, accepting the importance of nature as well as nurture. Yeah, I, I get the sense that psychologists feel that way, but still the some sometimes the general public doesn't want to admit the or accept the role of nature in people's behavior and their traits. But we'll get into the details of 
what you were just talking about, the, the controversies of the 70s around genetics and so on. But the first thing I just wanted to note was how amazing it is that you never heard the word genetics in your undergraduate time in psychology. But I think we're about to get into just why that was, though, to emphasize what you said, as I was reading Blueprint and some of your other papers, I was really surprised to hear that in Freud's time and before that and afterward, the dominant paradigm was that all behavioral traits were learned or determined by the environment. And I actually, I just reread Ernest Becker's Denial of Death for another podcast episode. And he was totally emblematic of this attitude, the way that he spoke about schizophrenia, which you just mentioned, or homosexuality was totally Freudian in that for him, it was entirely learned and it neglected what we now know is the heritability of these traits. But to begin with, to move on, I think that we ought to lay out some crucial terminology and concepts. And the first thing that comes to mind, maybe the most important for this field, is the distinction between quantitative and molecular genetics and where or from who they came from. Right. Good. Yeah, that's a good one. Probably even more fundamental, though, is the focus that, you know, of our three billion base pairs of DNA, you know, in the double helix of DNA, I'm sure everybody kind of knows that about the double helix. There are three billion steps in that spiral staircase of DNA, and that's what we call DNA bases. And we're identical. We have identical sequence for over 99% of those three billion base pairs of DNA. And that's what makes us human. That's what makes us walk on two feet and be natural language users. Kind of, we call that a nomothetic or species-wide point of view, which is kind of the, an evolutionary perspective in some ways, talking about universals, um, say for the human species. And in terms of development, children develop on average, they say their first word at 12 months and two word sentences at 18 months. Those are nomothetic universal perspectives. And that's what the 99% of the DNA is about. But the 1% that differs allows us to ask, to what extent does DNA differences, inherited DNA differences, make us different in behavior? And in my sort of genetics, we're talking about individual differences. Why do we differ? Why are some of us heavier than others? Uh, why are some people better at school than others? Why do some people have schizophrenia? So it's a really important distinction because there's no necessary relationship between these different levels of explanation. That is at the species-wide level versus the individual differences level. So that's probably even more fundamental. Now, the quantitative genetics, behavioral genetics is the, just the genetic study of behavior, but we're talking about individual differences. And that includes molecular genetics, DNA studies. That's the hot thing now but it also includes quantitative genetic studies for about a century. Um, these are like twin and adoption studies. They're quasi-experimental designs that allow us to ask the extent to which familial resemblance things run in families. To what extent does that do to nature or nurture? So that's what the twin study and the adoption study are about, and we can talk about those. But in terms of this bigger picture then, behavioral genetics is the genetic study of behavior, that includes both molecular genetic, that is DNA studies, 
but also these older quantitative genetic methods that get at the bottom line of genetic and environmental influence. And they're, they're really just as much about the environment as they are about genetics, because our environmentalistic studies for the last century in psychology are often confounded because they don't cons even think about genetics. So they show parents do something or, you know, that there's a relationship between how heavy parents are and how heavy their kids are, whether they're schizophrenic or, or not. It runs in families, and it was just always assumed it runs in families for reasons of nurture, ignoring the fact that parents and offspring are 50% similar genetically. So it could be, and it turns out it is, largely genetic, that is familial resemblance. So the, the excitement in behavioral genetics now is that these two worlds of genetics, molecular genetics and quantitative genetics, are coming together in what I call behavioral genomics. Genome, the genome is okay. And um, they have their origins in the late 1800s. I think that's what you were getting at. So early on, these two worlds were completely divergent. The molecular genetics, the origins was Mendel studying single gene characteristics and understanding the laws of heredity. And the goal there was to understand how genes work. In contrast, Galton, who was the cousin of Darwin, in the late, in the 1870s, initiated the field of what we call quantitative genetics, which focuses on traits, phenotypes, we call them. So behavioral traits, or a lot of the early work was with plants and animal husbandry. And a lot of that dealt with breeding, for example. You know, for tens of thousands of years, humans have known that you can breed for traits. And although they didn't have any formal idea of how inheritance works, they kind of got the idea it has something to do with inheritance. You know, the fact that you could select parents who would then have offspring that had characteristics you liked if you did that for several generations. So these two worlds of genetics were very different because the, Men the Mendelians, as they were called in the early 1900s, were focused on single gene disorders. And that's what a lot of molecular genetics was about. And by a single gene disorder, I mean a, a, a DNA variant, a mutation that is necessary and sufficient for the trait. So Mendel studied seven of those in the pea plant. One mutation, for example, caused the seeds of the pea plant to be wrinkled. And it's necessary and sufficient that a pea plant would only have wrinkled seeds if they had that mutation. And if they didn't have that mutation, they would not have wrinkled seed. They'd have the nice, smooth seeds that you expect to see in a proper pea plant. So when people rediscovered Mendel, you know, he wrote in 1869, and he was nobody noticed him until 1900s, so, sort of 1903. Darwin, it turned out, had a copy of Mendel's paper, but it was uncut. You know, in those old days, you had to actually cut the pages. You know, they were all stuck together in a portfolio and you had to slice them and they weren't sliced. So he couldn't have read it because, you know, he'd have to peek in there. So if he had, though, it would have solved his major problem in the theory of evolution. Where does this variation come from? And the essence of Mendel and understanding mutations is it's random. Mutations are random. But what natural selection does is it takes that variation and channels it in directions that involve a, um, adaptive uh, responses like 
survival of the uh, uh, fitness survival. You know, you have more offspring, basically. So when people found out about that in the early um, uh, 1900s, they started looking for single gene disorders. So they were looking for these Mendelian segregation ratios. You know, if it's a single gene, um, I, I don't know if you want me to go into all this, but you get these three to one ratios of, uh, of mutations. But the important thing is there's ways of looking for these single gene disorders. And they thought they were finding them, but they thought that's the way genetics works. If it's genetic, there's one gene and it causes this thing, the behavior you're looking at. Now, the, on the other side, the quantitative geneticists, they thought this was crazy because they've always been studying phenotypes in animals, in plants, in humans, and they know everything you study is normally distributed. They're not just either or, like Mendel's pea plants, where you either have smooth seeds or you have wrinkled seeds. They're dichotomous traits, which is the hallmark of a single gene disorder. But what the, um, so they thought Mendel's whole inheritance, laws of inheritance must be bonkers or just something specific to the pea plant because they knew that all characteristics, important characteristics in for animals and plants and humans are normally distributed. Uh, I, I'm sure people know what the normal bell-shaped curve looks like. And so in eight, 1918, the foundational paper of quantitative genetics was published by Sir Ronald Fisher that put these two together. And he just simply noted, it's a very opaque paper, 48 page paper that nobody actually reads because it's very hard to understand. But the message was simple. He's saying Mendel's laws of inheritance could be correct, but if a trait is influenced by several genes, it will quickly look like a normal distribution. And so he showed that very nicely and graphically that um, all you need is two or three genes, each of which have two forms, two alleles, and with a little bit of environmental variation, it will create something indistinguishable from a normal distribution. And so that's quantitative genetics, polygenic, where there are multiple genes involved. But on the other hand, we now know that there are thousands of single gene disorders in humans. But the thing about them is they're very rare. You know, like one of the, some of the more like common Huntington's. ones, one in 10,000 are the most common ones. But many of them are one in a million, one in 500,000. And they're often devastating for the person who has it, but they're not contributing much to the population as a whole. So if you think about medical disorders like uh, hypertension, diabetes, um, you, uh, there's substantial genetic influence, but single genes don't really make much of a difference. The genetics comes from many, maybe thousands of DNA differences across the genome. And the important part of that, it, it, to get to the bottom line of this story, is that people learn about genetics from Mendel, and you say genetics, and they think single genes, determinism, hardwired. And, you know, those seven, 10,000 single gene disorders that have been identified, they are hardwired and deterministic. I mean, if you have the mutation for Huntington's disease, which is a neurodegenerative disease that killed Willie, Woody Guthrie, for example, if you were Arlo Guthrie, his son, you'd have a 50% chance of inheriting that. It's a single gene necessary and sufficient for the development of Huntington's disease. And it will kill you unless something else kills you first. You know, it doesn't matter what your diet is or exercise regimes, it will kill you. So the trouble is people learn about genetics from Mendel 
But when you get into the traits like common medical disorders or quantitative traits that we study in psychology, it's not a matter of single genes. It's polygenic. And that goes, makes the switches from determinism to a probability approach, you know, where it's probabilistic rather than predetermined programming. And it's such an important distinction. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I know people aren't often is interested in the history of it, but it, it is important to recognize that if you learn about Mendel from, if you learn about genetics from Mendel, you're going to be thinking single genes and you've got to make the jump from that hardwired determinism to this uh, probabilistic um, influence. So we, we don't talk about innate or deterministic, you know, these are influences, genetics, you know? Um, so anyway, that I, I could go on and on as you can hear, but um, I'll take a breath and give you a chance. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I think the, the history is so necessary. I mean, you can't understand where we are without having the context. And maybe just, just to recapitulate, to make sure that I have the the broad arc of the story. So beginning roughly a century ago, Mendelians wanted to understand genetics, but the Galtonians wanted to understand behavior. So they diverged. Yet then due to technical advances, recent technical advances, they've come together to recently form what you've labeled labeled uh, behavioral genomics. And you wrote this very nice paper about behavioral genomics going forward over the next 10 years and the, I guess, predictions you have for how it will contribute to our understanding of behavioral genetics. And we'll get to that. But first, I think we need to talk more about what's gone on over the past 100 years and more particularly in the quantitative genetics side of things, just because, as you mentioned, the molecular genetics side was more concerned with one, I think, understanding DNA, the basics of the, the chemistry, but then also uh, these single gene um, disorders. So first, though, to get uh, just to get a number on the table, can you put a number on just how impactful genes are on behavior or psychological differences among individuals? Yeah. Well, there's this famous paper by Polderman in 2015 that reviewed, uh, what was it? Something like, it's, it's about twin studies, which compares identical and non-identical twins. And it's a, it reviews something like 4,500 studies over the, just all the studies that have been done and puts them together in a meta-analysis for hundreds of characteristics, medical, physiological. But if you just summarize it, on average, physical traits like height, weight, people might be especially interested to find physical traits are about 70% heritable. And I'll explain what oh, that Robert, means. This yeah. is a, okay. Okay. Yeah. This was because you and I talked about this beforehand. Just, yeah. Just so our listeners have an understanding of heritability as a percentage. When you say that something is 25% or 70% heritable, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the six-syllable word heritability is probably the most misunderstood word in biology. But it so it's great that you bring this up. By heritable, we're talking about individual differences. So people get it when you say, "Is eye color heritable?" And, you know, they say, "Yeah, sure," and they sort of understand what you mean. Some people have 
brown eyes and some people have blue eyes and they see that that runs in families. And they, they also see it's not a single gene thing because they, you know, you see lots of variations within families. And um, uh, her so heritability is the extent to which it's, it's just a statistic that describes the extent to which inherited DNA differences can account for differences in behavior. So people kind of recognize, I assume, that, well, actually, I've done surveys on this. I know people understand that if you ask, how heritable do you think height is uh, from 0% to 100%? On average, people will come up with a pretty good estimate of, say, 80 90%. And that is what it is. And what that means is that in the populations we study, people differ in height. 90% of those differences are due to inherited DNA differences for height. And even more surprisingly to people is weight. You know, weight is 70% heritable. So, which surprises people because that's one trait where people think, you know, well, all you gotta, it's gotta be environmental because, you know, if you don't eat, you lose weight and all of that. But it misunderstands the basic point here that we're describing differences that exist in a population and using methods like the twin method, the adoption method, and now DNA to ask the extent to which the differences we observe are due to inherited DNA differences. And by that, I mean, you start life as a single cell with half the DNA from your mother, half from your father. That DNA in that one cell is the same DNA in the trillions of cells in your body. So that's what we're talking about with when we say heritable. And it's still that 1% that I mentioned before, you know, that 1% of the DNA of the 3 billion base pairs that differs between us. We're saying that that 1% of DNA that differs, and that's millions of steps, you know, the 3 billion base pairs of DNA. So 1% is a lot of steps in the spiral staircase. It allows you to have a lot of DNA variation. Those DNA differences account for, say, 90% of the differences between us in height. So that's what heritability is. It's describing a particular population. There's a bunch of other caveats, I should say. It, it, we're talking about the, you can only um, talk about the samples you study. And so in psychology, we study pretty representative samples, maybe 95% of the population. But we're not studying, say, kids who grow up in abusive families, for example, because those people don't often participate in research. So it's pretty representative, but it is limited to the populations we study. So it, you can't generalize to other populations or to other, uh, you know, cultures, for example. Getting back to this meta-analysis by Polderman in 2015 is amazing. It summarized something like 4,500 twin studies comparing identical and non-identical twins for all across all the life sciences, and it, just summarizing that data at the grossest level, physical traits like weight show about 70% heritability on average, meaning 70% of the differences between people and weight are due to inherited DNA differences. And for physiological traits, it's more like um, 60%. But the amazing thing is for psychology, if you go across the hundreds of traits that have been studied, personality, psychopathology, cognitive traits, on average, the average heritability estimate is just about exactly 50%. And that means half of the differences between people are due to inherited DNA differences. It also means 
half of the differences between people are not due to inherited DNA differences. That's about the environment. But there's also a lot more it tells us about the environment. But it is, it is dramatic, though, to think that we've gone from not considering genetics to realizing that genetics is far and away the most important systematic source of individual differences in psychology. You know, it's off the scale of other psychological effects, you know, and it's uh, unusual in psychology to have effects that explain 5% of the variance. The, the variance is a statistic that describes the extent to which people differ. It sort of describes this normal bell-shaped curve. And so it is quite amazing to, to have gone from not even talking about genetics to realizing genetics is the most important systematic factor, which is why my book is called Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Um, and I should say that 50% I mentioned varies from say 40% for personality to maybe 60% for cognitive abilities. But 40%, 60%, you know, it interests us who are in the field. But I mean, for most people, the thing is, it's a long way from 0%. Increasingly, it's important to emphasize it's a long way from 100% too. So it isn't all, it isn't all genetics. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into the interplay between environment and genetics right now, I think, actually. And you, you already said that much of this early research, beginning in the 20s, centered around twin studies and adoption studies. And I think it's just, I'm just interested in the methodology of this. Why are each of these these two types of experimental setups or semi-experimental, as you put it, useful in their own ways? What do they allow us to determine or well, control for? Yeah. We know that all traits run in families. You know, people have known that for tens of thousands of years. And so for as long as we've got recorded history, schizophrenia, people seem to know it runs in families, mental illness. And the question, it was always assumed to be environmental. That's where the word nurture comes from. It was a particular type of environment, nurture in the sense of family environment. And that's perfectly reasonable, you know, to think, say, obesity comes from uh, your family environment because your parents provide the food and role models for lifestyles and all of that. But you, uh, these studies, twin and adoption designs, allow us to... Um, actually test for the extent to which it's nature or nurture. So the neat thing about twin and adoption studies is they're completely different designs with completely different problems, yet they come up with the same answer, which is pretty powerful because they do have assumptions. So the twin method compares, probably everyone knows there are two types of twins, identical and fraternal twins, and identical twins are genetically identical. You sequence their DNA and they're as similar to each other as you would be with yourself, say, 20 years ago. Um, you know, you've picked up mutations, but those are not inherited mutations. And identical twins are identical for their inherited DNA because they come from the same fertilized egg. And in the first one to 10 days of life, that egg splits, that zygote splits into two with the same DNA. So that's 
why they're identical twins. Whereas the other type of twin, fraternal twins, about two thirds, so 1% of all births are twins, one third of those are identical, two thirds are fraternal. Fraternal twins are just like any brother and sister who happen to be conceived at the same time in the same womb. So they're separately fertilized eggs. And then like any brother and sister, they're 50% similar genetically. So the essence of the twin method is to say, if a trait is heritable, like let's take a trait we don't really know much about, like musical ability. If that's heritable, you'd have to predict that identical twins will be more similar than fraternal twins because they're twice as similar genetically. So that's the essence of the twin method. And the adoption method, as I say, is completely different. If the twin method is like a biological experiment, you know, where, whether they're identical or fraternal twins, the adoption method is a social experiment. If you want to understand the extent to which familial resemblance is due to nature or nurture, you could study nature parents, that is parents who share genes but not environment with their kids, and nurture parents who share environment but not genes with their kids. And that's what happens in the adoption design where um, in the Colorado Adoption Project, which I started 40 years ago, we had birth parents who relinquished their kids for adoption at birth. And in those days, in the 70s, um, parents, uh, unlike today, they had no contact. Part of the deal was they would have their kids and give them away at birth and not have contact with them anymore. So they shared genes but not environment with their kids. And then we've got adoptive parents of those kids who share environment but not genes with the kids. So we also then had matched what we call non-adoptive parents who share genes and environment with their kids. And so just to make it concrete, you know, with weight, you find that um, parents and offspring are about similar 0.4, you know, correlation that goes from zero to one. So they correlate about 0.4. They're similar genetically about 0.5, but they correlate about 0.4. You know, so that's less than their genetic similarity. It's still a lot of similarity, 0.4. That was always assumed perfectly reasonably to be due to nurture. So if it's due to nurture, you'd have to predict that parents who adopt kids at birth will be just as similar to those kids because they provide the family environment for those kids. But the correlation in meta-analyses of these data of adoption studies, the correlation between adoptive parents' weight and their adopted children's weight is zero. So the kids are not at all similar to their parents in weight. Then if That's it's not nurture, then it ought to be nature. So what's the correlation between the birth parents who relinquish the kids for adoption at birth and those adopted away kids, say 16, 20 years later? It's 0.4. It's just the same as the correlation between parents who raise their own kids. So that's why it's so powerful. You know, it's like a direct test of nurture, a direct test of nature. And the neat thing is it corresponds to the twin data. So if you look at twin data, you find identical twins are very uh, similar for weight, maybe 0.75 correlations. And fraternal twins are similar about 0.4. And it's that the extent to which identical twins are more similar than fraternal twin that allows you to estimate the effect size. You don't expect that fraternal twins to be correlated zero because they're 50% similar genetically. So that pattern of correlations 
indicates a heritability of about 65%. I mean, you know, so that corresponds to the adoption data. And um, these, we could go into it, but these two methods have different assumptions. But the neat thing is they both come down to the same conclusion. And now it's incontrovertible because you can do DNA studies and find the DNA differences that account for these differences in weight. So those are the two methods, the twin method and the adoption method. And also there are family studies that have been going on for a long time. They're like the base rate here. You know, we know to what extent do things run in families? And then twin and adoption studies say, to what extent do they run in families for reasons of nature or nurture? I... I ask all of these questions because this podcast, it really started as a philosophy podcast. And I think of, you asked me about our, our listeners before we start. And I think a lot of our listeners like me are very interested in these conceptual issues, just as much so as they are in the findings. And the findings, of course, are the fun stuff. And we'll get to that, get to those in a few minutes. But there was one other sort of, uh, context e background sort of question that I wanted to ask that I found fascinating was that, or I found this fascinating that the rise of Nazism and eugenics had a serious effect on quantitative genetics. And then right in the beginning of our conversation, you also mentioned that there were controversies in the 1960s and 70s. So I saw that there was a, a paper by a psychologist named Arthur Jensen. I think the title was how much can we boost IQ and scholastic achievement or something like that? And it came out in 69. And these two things together, I mean, they're emblematic of the controversies that quantitative genetics faced over this hundred year period. And I thought that before we get into the findings, we might just talk about what these controversies were and whether or not they had any merit. Great. Yeah, that's good. That kind of finishes the story we began earlier about these two worlds of genetics, molecular genetics and quantitative genetics. And I explained why they diverged for most of the century, because they just had very different goals. Molecular genetics, trying to understand how genes work, focusing on single gene disorders, creating mutations, you know, like big sledgehammer effects to understand how the genes work. Whereas the quantitative geneticists, following up from Galton, wanted to study traits and they wanted to use genetics to help them understand these complex phenotypic traits. So then because quantitative geneticists thought there were many, many genes involved, they didn't pay much attention to molecular genetics because they knew these single gene approaches weren't working. But what happened in 2003 was the human genome sequence after 10 years of 2 billion worth of research sequenced the whole human genome. And then what followed from that was understanding that there isn't a human genome sequence. We all have unique DNA sequences. We differ with millions of these DNA-based pairs. So there's human genome sequences. And then once you start identifying, once you find these DNA differences, you can ask, do these DNA differences relate to complex traits like behavior? So in 85, these two worlds started coming together when we got the first um, DNA markers of DNA itself. So for 50 years, we've had DNA markers like blood types, but they're not 
in the, they're not DNA differences, they're phenotypes. You know, blood is a single, you know, blood types are single gene phenotypes. But by 1985, as we began being, we could begin sequencing DNA in 1970. So that's when this started. And then by 1985, there was a technique developed by Alex Jeffries in Leicester in um, the UK called DNA fingerprinting. It involved a type of, of DNA difference that is highly variable between people. It has to do with the number of repeats. And it gives you like a barcode then across the genome. And so that's what's completely transformed forensic psychology, uh, forensics now, because you know you can uniquely identify a person. You can say, you know, the very famous, famous case in the 1980s in England was there two girls had been, adolescent girls had been raped and murdered, and they didn't know who it was, but they had sperm, and so they knew they had the DNA. So they decided they would take this, this is 1987, so this technique was only first developed in 1985, but it was so powerful that they thought, well, they could just get DNA from all the men in the area and determine who the killer was. So, you know, you can imagine if you were Alex, Sir Alex Jeffrey, you would be quite worried about this because, I mean, it's a new technique, you know, is it really going to work that well? So they rounded up everybody, every male, and there were pressure on them, you know, to provide a, a DNA sample. You know, they didn't have to provide sperm. They just have to provide a little cheek swab of DNA. So they got everybody, no one. And then, so they thought, oh God, you know, here's another crazy science experiment. But then some woman heard a guy over, uh, overheard uh, two guys talking in a bar and the guy was saying, you know, I'm not going to do that, you know. And this guy had forced him to give a DNA sample for him. And having heard that over conversation, they got this guy, got his DNA. It was him. And that he had this Dickensian name, Pitchfork. And um, he's been in jail since, and they just released him um, last month, which created a bit of a fer uh, Ferrari as well. And this forensic thing has been very interesting because it's been responsible for getting something like 30 people off of death row. You know, every now and then you hear about one of these cases. Where in England, just last week, there was a guy who, or last month, who had been in jail for 17 years for a crime he never admitted, he, a murder he never, he said he didn't commit. And it turns out it's a real scandal that there was DNA, but the police said there wasn't DNA. And the DNA proved it wasn't his DNA, you know. So he he was let out of jail after 17 years in jail. So um, the, uh, people know about how it's used to identify criminals, especially through these large DNA databases now. But um, I think it's very interesting to see that um, several dozen people have been let off of death row because the DNA proves that, I mean, the police were saying, this is their DNA, this is the blood of the killer or whatever, and it's not his DNA. So that's that was kind of neat to have that happen in the 1980s. And then as the human genome sequence was determined from the 1990s to 2003, um, that led to all sorts of unintended um, discoveries. I kind of, I think it's such a great, um, advertisement for blue sky science, because 
you know, everybody thought pretty good idea to sequence the whole human genome. It wasn't so easy to say why, but it turns out all of the big discoveries that have come from it were unanticipated. And for me, it was finding these millions of DNA variants that you can genotype. And in the 1990s and 2000s, you had to do it very laboriously and expensively. One by one, you had to genotype people, get a little bit of DNA from them and genotype them. It's very expensive. But then the final um, advance was technological, something called a, a gene chip or SNP chip. It's a little array, DNA array, the size of a postage stamp that can genotype hundreds of thousands of DNA differences at a time with just minute bits of DNA. It's really an amazing advance that led to a Nobel Prize. And that's what's changed everything because it's made it very cheap. So 27 million people have paid to have their DNA genotype using these called the SNP chips because it's a particular type of DNA difference, the most common one, a single nucleotide polymorphism, SNP, SNP. And these chips then measure hundreds of thousands of these SNPs across the genome. So they allow you to sample variation across the entire genome. And they now cost, you, you could do this for about $40. And if you did use 23andMe or one of those companies, they'd charge you about $100 to do this, to get your DNA tested. So um, that then allows us to move from single genes because that was the game in molecular genetics up until 2000 or so. Find a single gene disorder and be the first one to find the gene for that disorder. And, and you know, if you find, if you get your publication in an hour before someone else, then you're the discoverer of that gene. And so it was a, and then you started running out of genes. And it was almost like clerical work. There was no intelligence involved you know you just screen for all these genes and you find where it is and then you do more intense studies to prove it's actually this base pair of dna in the three billion base pairs that's responsible for that so molecular geneticists once the chips came out started saying wait a minute now we can we don't have to just be stuck with single gene disorders we can look for complex traits and at the same time quantitative geneticists said wow we can use DNA techniques to look for genetic variation. And so that's when it really came together. And it was, it was a fusion that really led to a huge explosion of research it, and that continues today. You know, you can't keep up with all the advances. And everything that you've just said, I'm mean, including the way that molecular genetics has been beneficial for society in the form of the ways it's impacted the justice system. It all suggests that whatever was controversial around the time of the Nazis and going into the 60s and 70s, the dire predictions weren't borne out because genetics has only been helpful in so many different ways. But what was controversial at the time yeah yeah i i know i i, I didn't really i got sidetracked a bit with the excitement about the dna revolution but you know going back to the two worlds diverging where the molecular geneticists were focused on single gene traits and behavioral geneticists were focused on complex psychological sorts of traits that took off in the 1920s or so 
But at that time in psychology, you probably know that behaviorism began with J.B. Watson, who has his famous quote, environmentalistic quote that, you know, give him a dozen kids and he'll turn them into anything you want him to turn them into, that the environment can completely control how kids turn out. But then, so then psychology became, that went from introspection in psychology, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s, you know, where it was navel gazing psychology, you know, to understand how your mind works, you know, you just think about it. Whereas behaviorism said we had to be more objective and look at uh, objective experiments. And behaviorism, though, led to environmentalism because a lot of the work was done with non-human animals where you manipulated the environment to change the behavior so that you didn't have to look inside the head at all. You know, you can just observe behavior. And that's how behaviorism kind of led to environmentalism. But it was really enforced by, this is 1920s. 1930s, what happened was Nazi Germany, which began to um, use, I think, genetics as a fig leaf. I mean, I think they would have done what they did without any knowledge of genetics, you know. But um, at that, with the rise of Nazi Germany, you couldn't really talk about genetics and psychology until the 60s again. It was really verboten. There were animal studies that ticked along and a few European studies, but um, it was pretty much the end of the field for 50 years. But then in the 60s, I think psychiatrists especially began to come to a more balanced view. I mean, because people were realizing that the idea that everything we are is determined by what your mother does to you in the first few years of life just it's crazy i mean you know it, it can't be true and then um some adoption studies and twin studies came along and there was a swing in the 70s especially in psychiatry less so in psychology towards a more balanced view but then in 69 you mentioned arthur jensen's paper in harvard educational review which he was invited to write it's actually a good review of genetics and learning ability but then he was asked to specifically talk about race differences. And that's the third rail in this area. And he, you know, he basically said, well, if everything's genetically influenced, maybe race differences are too. But, you know, he didn't say he showed that. He just saying it could be. But um, that was just too explosive. So that put the field back then again. Um, not so much in psychiatry, but definitely in psychology. So that's when I came into the field in 1970, the year after Jensen. And, but that's when a lot of new developments occurred, like model fitting, where instead of just looking at twin studies and saying, oh, look, the identical twins are more similar than the fraternal twins, you, you put it into these models that test for things like assortative mating, couples, you know, uh, mothers and fathers are correlated, and that has effects on the kids. It gives them a double dose of genes. Selective placement and adoption study, to what extent are adopted kids adopted into homes like their biological parents, you know, where the two sets of parents are similar. The equal environments assumption and the twin method. So you, you can put it into a model that has a lot of parameters that test for all these things. And then you can say, which of these things are important? You can test a particular model. That's called model fitting. And so that moved away from kind of... Um, uh, you know, just um, verbal descriptions of results to very tight 
statistical test. And it was important, I think, too. I don't know if you've run into the replication crisis in psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so important. Yeah, we've across talked all about the it a number of times on the show. Oh, good, good. It's one of the reasons I think behavioral genetics has survived. Um, it, I have a paper saying, you know, that um, there are 10 top replicated findings in behavioral genetics. And the thing is, they do replicate. It's this bit about progressive science that I mentioned. And the reason it does, in part, is because of these model fitting approaches, where you don't just do an analysis like this and an analysis like that, and then look at the result that you like. You know, you really test the model and you come up with confidence intervals. And the other thing I think is important is that quantitative genetics has always focused on effect size that rather than statistical significance. And most people would agree that statistical significance is what's led to a lot of the replication crisis. Um, do you think your readers know, you know, there's this standard thing of a P of 0.05, which means you'll accept a result that could only happen to a chance one out of 20 times. But if you look at a lot of different results and you pick the one you like, probability goes out the window. That's called chasing p-values. Well, um, a lot of psychology still only focuses on statistical significance. They say this is related to that. Why? Well, it's statistically significant. But you should, one hobby horse of mine is to say, people should never accept statistical significance. They should say, how big is the effect? Because you can have statistically significant effects that account for nothing, you know, 1% of the variance. So, for example, you know, you, you read, oh, boys are better at math and girls are better at verbal things. There's a mean difference that accounts for less than 1% of the variance. That is, if you drew the distribution of verbal ability for girls and for boys, you'd need a very fine pen to discriminate those because the means are hardly differ at all. But if uh, significance is just a function of sample size. So these studies have tens of thousands of kids. So the tiniest difference will be statistically significant, but it's not socially significant in any way. So when people hear about effects being significant, they should say, yeah, well, okay, but what's the effect size? And that's where behavioral genetics really comes through. It's always focused on the effect size. And we were... Uh, unreasonably lucky in the sense that the effect sizes are so huge. You know, 50% of the variance, you only need twin studies with, say, um, 80 or 90 pairs of identical and non-identical twins, and you'll have 80% power to detect that effect. So if the effect sizes had been smaller, I mean, who would have thought 50% of the variance? If it was more like 20%, our studies wouldn't have found much genetic influence because they weren't powered to detect those smaller effects. And that's actually where molecular genetics contribution to the replication crisis came in. In the 1990s, before we had SNP chips, you could still measure specific genes, but as I, DNA variants, but as I said, it was very expensive and time consuming. So what they did was to focus on a few, they called them candidate genes. So if you're studying depression, you'd look for genes like serotonin that are involved in um, depression and drug treatments for depression. And they found all these associations. They're they're really like a thousand papers in the 1990s published saying um, this gene is related to that trait. 
but they had only studied a couple of a few genes and they committed every sin in the catalog of the replication crisis, chasing p-values, um, analyzing things to get a result that was statistically significant because you couldn't publish if it wasn't. And now in, but at least because it's a progressive science, it was self-correcting. And by the late 1990s, you couldn't publish a candidate gene study because the record was clear. They never replicated. And that's because they were doing everything wrong and reporting false positive results. And now we know with the SNP chips, which is just the opposite of a candidate gene approach, you look at hundreds of thousands, really millions of DNA variants in a completely atheoretical way. And you just say, is that one related? Is that one related? And what you find is you never get any big associations. The biggest effect sizes are incredibly small, which means that heritability is due to many, many, many small effects. And that's tough in some ways. I mean, if you're a molecular biologist, that's not cool because, you know, how are you going to trace from genes to brain to behavior if the effect size is 0.01% of the variance? That's 0.0001 of the variance. So, um, uh, so I guess that's how that was the problems with um, Nazi Germany. Um, genetics was forbidden in psychology for 30, 40 years. It slowly came back, but then with the DNA revolution, it's come, you know, bounding back. Um, and it makes it a, a very exciting time because we, we still have a, a lot of the DNA variation to find. Uh, it's, the big problem right now is called missing heritability. So twin studies say 50% of the variance of psychological traits is heritable, but DNA studies so far have only found like half of that. So there's a gap between the two heritabilities. So that's the big problem now people talk about as missing heritability. And there's good ideas as to where that missing heritability lies. But still to explain 25% of the variance with DNA itself is pretty amazing. Well, thank you so much for humoring all of my background questions. Uh, this has been really fun, but I am ready to get to the real fun stuff now, which is your research and the research and the findings. And I think Intelligence is probably the right place to start because, as you mentioned, it's uh, so heritable and there's been so much research on it and it is so replicable. So maybe we should start with, well, I don't know how you like to talk. Do you like, do you think a historical approach is good? Are the results that were collected beginning in the 1920s still viewed today as reliable or do you prefer to talk about the more recent research? But I guess the question is, what has been found about the heritability of intelligence? Yes, good. Well, some of the first studies in behavioral genetics in the 1920s, the first twin study in 1924, and the first adoption study in 1928 were on IQ, because it had just been invented at the time. Um, Spearman, Charles Spearman in 1904, first talked about um, what he called G, general cognitive ability. He noticed that all different tests of cognitive ability, memory tests, spatial tests, verbal tests, even vocabulary, they all correlate. They have this positive manifold. 
And so he developed factor analysis as a way of extracting what's in common among these diverse cognitive tests. And that's what he called G, general cognitive ability. And I mentioned that because, you know, there's still the sense, oh, intelligence is just what intelligence test measures. But it's actually one of the best studied traits that we have. It's solid. Hello. <laughs> and very... Um, My co-host. Yep. Very reliable. And it predicts more things that we value in society than anything else. So it is important. It's like, it's like people say, oh, but what is it? Well, what it is, is what diverse tests have in common. But you can think of it like a key factor is abstract reasoning. Or I mentioned this in case some people still have hangups about intelligence. Um, if, if we sat down with some friends and just said, well, what do you think an intelligent person is? We would come up with a test. We could come up with a test that would correlate quite highly with other intelligence tests. It isn't this magical, weird construct. You know, it's just you'd expect an intelligent person to be able to solve problems, new problems, you know, problems they haven't dealt with before. And so abstract reasoning is part of it. And you probably recognize that um, verbal ability is part of it too. You know, you'd expect an intelligent person to be able to explain something to you in a way you understand, you know? So, um, so uh, I guess if they, I, I just am concerned that sometimes people just kind of dismiss intelligence. And so maybe that's enough to get people to say, well, okay, don't just dismiss this. It's just like general learning ability. And surely you saw teachers see that some kids learn a lot more quickly than other kids. And it isn't just one thing. Some kids just generally pick up stuff a lot quicker than other kids. So that's sort of what we're talking about. And because it's obviously related to things that we value in society, like occupational status and income, it's been studied for a hundred hundred and years in psychology. And the first twin adoption studies were on intelligence. And they suggested, I think it's quite amazing to go back to those studies and say, they came up with heritability estimates that are quite, they didn't have the statistical sophistication we have now, but their data is quite compatible with current data. And this is the most studied trait in um, behavioral genetics, general cognitive ability. And it suggests that on average, 50% of the differences between people in intelligence tests, no matter how you measure it, you know, um, there's something called the indifference of the indicator, because it is what cognitive tests have in common. Any set of cognitive tests gives you pretty similar results. And it isn't that some things are more heritable than others. You know, you might be surprised that um, spatial ability, verbal ability are just as heritable as other traits. The only one, memory, is very difficult to measure and it shows less heritability. It may be because it's just less reliable to measure. If you've taken like an intelligence test, like the Wexler test, one of them is digit span and they give you digits, you know, one, seven, nine, three, and then you have to say them backwards. And, and they keep getting longer and longer. And you start feeling your brain frying. And, and, you know, it's very easy to say, I can't be asked to do this, you know. It takes a lot of brain energy to do that. Whereas other tests like uh, vocabulary, vocabulary is one of the most highly heritable tests, which is kind of interesting in light of what we were saying before. 
because people say, how can vocabulary be heritable? But remember, we're talking about individual differences. Some people have a very big vocabulary and they're verbally very fluent and other people are less so. And I, I have a grandchild, I have six grandchildren. One of them, a girl is very keen on language and she always wants to know, why did you use that word rather than that word? Interested in the nuances of words. And these other grandchildren, you know, whatever, you know what I mean, you know, and who's going to get the better vocabulary? You know, it's not like you sit down and memorize words. You pick them up. And some people are more oriented towards a verbal channel. It isn't like the words are hardwired in your brain, obviously. So it's a good example of what we were talking about um, earlier. And so my point is that all cognitive tests show substantial genetic influence. And G, general cognitive ability, is what they have in common. And so... Um, it's the best studied trait. All the data suggest a heritability of about 50%, but there are some special findings that are, I think, particularly interesting. And that is that if you, if you, if you, if you ask, if we ask the listeners to think about intelligence, general learning ability, would you think that genetic influence becomes less important or more important as you get older? That was exactly the next question that I was going to ask you, because as I was reading, I found it very counterintuitive just based on what I think of heritability to say that. And I'll, I'll answer your question because I read that heritability of intelligence increases during development. And I don't really know what that means. Yeah. Well, that's that's really a cool finding, because the problem in psychology is a lot of our findings, you know, you get the old thing. Well, my grandmother could have told me that. But this is one where if you ask a public, you give a public lecture and you ask people that question, they would say, just like you did, that you'd expect that the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, environment, accidents, environmental things add up as you go through life, whereas your genetics is a constant. So you'd expect that genetic influence goes down during the lifespan. But instead, the heritability of intelligence goes up dramatically from infancy to childhood, to adolescence, to adulthood, to older adulthood. It goes up, goes from 20% in infancy and early childhood to 40% in adolescence to 60% of the variance in middle adulthood. And some people say, excluding dementia, 80% later in life. But that is a dramatic increase. I mean, from 20% to say 60% or 80%, it, it's just a monster finding. And so the next question always is, but why would that be? Well, can we, before you say why that, before you answer why that would be, I don't know the right way of framing this question, but can you sort of make up a, a case or an example to explain what this means to say, to say that it the heritability increases as we age. So, yeah. 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 Okay, good. Well, you can take twin studies or adoption studies. So you can take all those twin studies in that meta-analysis I described. And as, as we've done, take, separate them by age. So they're not all longitudinal studies, but you know, you can take those with infants, those with middle childhood, those with adolescence, and you get exactly this linear increase in heritability. So the older twin studies, you know, the adults will show 60% heritability, identical twin correlations of say 0.8 and fraternal twin correlations of say 0.5 in adulthood. And so 
heritability increases linearly, just the same adoption, the twin method. And then in adoption, our adoption study, the Colorado adoption study, studied kids from infancy through adolescence. And what we know is parent-offspring resemblance, where you share genes and environment, non-adoptive families, it goes up from, say, 0.2 correlations to 0.4 correlations from infancy to childhood. And what you find is the birth parents also show that same increasing similarity in IQ to their adopted away children. So it's the same, it's just exactly the methods I described of analyzing, estimating heritability, but you just do it across age and you find that these heritability estimates consistently go up. Can I, uh, so I cut you off uh, just a few minutes ago, but you were going to explain why we find that the heritability increases. And I'm wondering if I, I can just, I don't know the answer, but I'm gonna guess. And is it that, one of the things genetics does is determine how we interact with, or determine might be too strong, but it heavily influences how we interact with the environment and how the environment interacts with us. And it would just stand to reason then that the longer time period we have to interact with the environment, the more time it gives for our genes to manifest themselves. So going back to your example of your granddaughter, we know that she has this aptitude for language, but when she's an infant, she hasn't had that much time. Well, one, she doesn't speak yet if she's just six months old, but by the time she's two, she hasn't had that much time to interact with the environment. But by the time she's 10, she's doing, she's learning how to read. She's starting to engage with books. By the time she's 25, she will have already gone to college, have have an English degree. And as she gets older, it's just more and more time for her to soak up words. Is that basically how this yeah, works? Exactly right. In genetics, we call that gene environment correlation. And it's the idea that, um, you know, environmentalism has this view that the environment's out there imposed on us. And that comes from animal studies, where as the experimenter, you decide to starve or shock the rats to make them learn certain things you want them to learn. And a lot of us still have this feeling the environment is out there, imposed passively on us. But what genetics says is that, say, there's strong genetic influence on vocabulary. As I say, it's one of the most heritable cognitive abilities. Yet you're not born with vocabulary words, as you're pointing out. You have to learn vocabulary words. But you don't learn them by sitting there memorizing a dictionary. You pick them up in your environment. And so the idea is that the genetics doesn't work by hardwiring your brain for vocabulary. Instead, it gives you, it makes you use your environment to foster your genetic propensity. So that I often say you, you um, select environments, modify environments and create environments correlated with your genetic propensities. So you hang out with other kids, you have a spouse who you can talk to in the morning, you know, you select environments that are correlated increasingly as you develop. So there's another type of, well, I won't go into that, but uh, no, but exactly right. I really agree with you. And the, but the more general point of gene environment correlation is we actually create our environments. We select them, you know, by going to university, maybe by going into English or by reading, you know, you, you just like to read because you like words and the, and language. 
So I think that that's getting us into this interface between nature and nurture, which is a very important topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad that we fleshed out this concept of gene environment correlation because it's it's really crucial. And yes, we'll definitely get into the interface between genetics and environment. But there is one thing I wanted to ask about that you mentioned earlier, which was that Spearman found that memory, uh, spatial intelligence, verbal intelligence, um, quantitative intelligence, and so on, they all correlate. And then you said that memory aside, they all seem similarly heritable. And this reminds me of something else that I read was that there are two models. Uh, well, there's the generalist and then the modular model of genes. And I was wondering if this is a good example of the generalist model, but more generally, what the two are and what the what the distinction is and why it's important. Yeah. Well, again, coming from a single gene perspective, Mendelian perspective, you know, you tend to think of genes for X and a gene for Y. You, you tend to think of, you should never say genes for anyway, because, you know, it's not, it's a matter of um, genetic influence. It's not this gene determines that. But it is that modular thinking that you really see in neuroscience too, where this bit of the brain, you know, here's your brain on drugs and that bit of the brain lights up. But what genetics is, research is suggesting, quantitative genetics, is that genes are generalists. They're, you know, that they work mostly across all cognitive abilities, for example. And that's, that's the idea of genetic G. Most of the genes that affect spatial ability also affect your verbal ability and quantitative. And you get people, people say, oh, no, I'm good at verbal. I'm not good at quantitative. But actually, they are. They're maybe not as good at quantitative as they are at verbal, but compared to the population, on average, they're going to be both good at both because the genes are kind of generalist genes. It also means if you found genes for one cognitive ability, um, you got to, the genetic correlations on average are about 0.5. So the chances are you, you're going to find a gene that's correlated with a lot of other cognitive abilities as well. And where this is really a hot topic now is P, instead of G, P is general psychopathology. What this genetic research has shown, and especially the genomic research now, is that our psychiatric nosology, the classification of psychiatric disorders, has no relationship to the genetic architecture of psychopathology. So you start with um, uh, the top of the classification of psychiatric disorders is schizophrenia and uh, bipolar um, depression, you know, where people cycle between mania and depression. And up until the last version of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, DSM-5, you couldn't be both because they were considered, you know, the very first dividing line in psychiatry. Yet when the first, we call them genome-wide association studies were done using these SNP chips to identify genes responsible for schizophrenia, all the genes they find are also associated with bipolar, which is, you know, it's just so mind boggling because these are supposed to be completely different disorders etiologically. But the problem with psychiatric nosology is it developed historically. It didn't develop empirically. And so 
what we've now found is that the genetic correlations between these psychiatric disorders is extremely high. And there's a strong general component. So it really does tear up the diagnostic classification schemes, which come from the medical model, which is a single gene, single cause sort of approach, you know, where you, like in medical epidemiology, you know, you've got a cholera epidemic and you look for the cause, the cause, contaminated water that causes this disorder. So your first step is you got to diagnose and say, do they have cholera or not? And so that single factor, single gene approach has dominated psychiatry who has kind of medical envy in a way. They want, they want to be like a medical um, illness, but actually medicine is moving towards a more dimensional rather than diagnostic approach. So I think there's just no reality to these psychiatric diagnoses. There are problems. People have problems, but we don't gain anything by reifying them as diseases, distinct, etiologically distinct disorders. And so it's really going to, it's revolutionizing psychiatry already. I find at the Institute of Psychiatry, I find psychiatrists don't, you'd think they'd be very upset by this because everything they've done is according to these diagnostic manuals. And I'm just saying the whole architecture is wrong, but on top of that, it isn't even a disorder. It's just the dimension. These things are quantitative. They're not either or. So anyway, that's a long story itself, but it, um, I think this does relate to the idea of generalist genes, which we've known about for a long time with cognitive abilities, but we're just beginning to see that in psychiatry as well, most genetic effects are general. So if you have parents who have psychopathology, your risk of psychopathology is greater, but it doesn't work. It isn't inherited in a true way, like you know, schizophrenia could relate to ADHD in children. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it's, it's often hard for people to get their head around the idea of generalist genes, but I think it is a very important finding in the area. Hmm. Well, uh, I guess this will, t this will take us on a bit of a tangent, but I think it's really important. As I was reading, I was astonished by what you were just mentioning, or just talking about. I, I don't recall if it was um, correlation of 0.7 or 0.9, but that I mean, very high either way of depression and anxiety, but I'm an N of one, I, but I have, I have a history of both depression and anxiety. And if you look on both sides of my family, you see that as well. And I think that the initial response that most people probably have when they hear this is something fatalistic. It's like, well, okay, I'm, I'm destined to be depressed and anxious. There's nothing I can do about it. It's genetically determined. But I have the sense that you don't feel this way. You think of this knowledge as empowering, and it will be very useful for psychiatrists, and not only for diagnosing psychopathologies in advance. And I can see that, uh, or predicting uh, maybe maybe it helps with preparation in some sense. But how going forward do you think that this sort of this improved understanding of the etiology of psychopathologies will improve treatment? Yeah, well, it, that's a great question. I mean, that's the big question, really. And um, as you say, I do feel that it's 
important for understanding ourselves to understand genetics. Um, just taking the environmentalistic point of view, what good is it to think your anxiety was caused by the way your mother treated you in the first few years of life? That isn't too cool either. I mean, I know some people have gone through that sort of psychiatric thing. And I actually have a, a son-in-law who didn't talk to his parents for two years after that sort of um, therapy, because he was convinced that all his problems in life were due to the way his parents treated him in the first few years of life. So it's just not true. I mean, there's just no evidence for that. So about genetics now, we're beginning to be able to predict these things or these problems using DNA itself. So people say, well, uh, that doesn't, you know, if, if I think, um, if I take a fatalistic point of view, I say, well, I can't do anything about it. So what good is that? But actually, um, I, I was the first person to have my, I call it um, phenol-wide polygenic scores. I got polygenic scores for everything that existed when I wrote Blueprint. And I, I, got, I presented them in the book for myself. And my worst polygenic score is for obesity. I have a, I'm at the 94th percentile of genetic risk. It isn't obesity. It's just body weight. I and mean, there's, you know, obesity, again, is not a distinct, etiologically distinct disorder. It is merely the quantitative extreme of this dimension of genetic and environmental influence. So I'm at the 94th percentile, but my actual weight is only at the 70th percentile. So actually, I'm, I'm not as heavy as I should be. But it was very liberating for me to find out about that because it, weight is very substantially genetically influenced. It is, you know, you skinny people don't understand that it's some people put on weight a lot more easily. And um, the, in psychology, we talk about satiety, the sense of feeling full, and also responsiveness to food cues. And I'm screwed for both. You know, I, if I walk by, I just think about walking by a bakery and the smells of the bakery. My mouth starts to water. And if I went in there, I, I just get a little cookie or something. No, you know, I'll pig out because I didn't, I just feel so good. And, and satiety is the other interesting one. I don't know if this happens to you, but when I go out to dinner with friends and they're finished eating, there's food on the table. They said, you want any more? No, I'm full, but then I'll just keep eating. You know, and if, they ate anymore, they'd get sick, but I just keep eating. So naturally, I'm going to put on weight. Totally. And people, yeah. Well, people tell me, well, just pull up your socks, as they say in England, you know, um, get control of yourself and don't do that. Well, easier said than done, you know, because, you know, you don't intentionally sit down to pick out, but it, it just does happen. And you, you put on a pound and another pound and another pound and it's invidious, you know, it just keeps growing. Um, so uh, I found it liberating, though, because it makes me realize it's not just, you know, a matter of uh, being more in control of myself. It's realizing you're really in a lifelong battle of the bulge here. And what I what you got to do is get serious about it and say, I've got to engineer my environment. I just don't have snack food around because I know with the best of intentions, Sometimes late at night, you're tired or whatever. You just say, I'll just have a crisp or some, you know, potato chip. And then before you know it, the whole bag's gone, that sort of thing. So uh, I've, it, to the contrary, you know, where people say, oh, it just means if you find out you have a high genetic propensity for weight, you're just going to say, I give up. I'm just going to be a genetic fatty. Nothing I can do about it. But to the contrary, I think it works the other way. 
it's kind of motivating to say, I've got a battle here. It's not my fault. It's a biological thing. And, you know, now with semiglutide, do you know the semiglutide story? The um, Wagovi um, Ozempic, uh, it, you know, I've lost um, 20 pounds. I've been on it for about five or six months with no effort. It just makes me a normal person. You know, I don't crave food the same way. I enjoy food. But I, I was out at dinner last night with friends and I amazed myself. I didn't finish everything on my plate or on the table. You know, I just said, no, I kind of feel full. And, it, you know, so that and then we know with these um, semiglutides um, that if you stop taking them, your weight goes back up. And that, I think, also indicates the biological nature of this issue. And uh, in England, the um, main criticism of these is it's just too easy. You know, people shouldn't be able to lose weight that easily. You know, it should be a matter of, you know, like a puritanical attitude towards it. You know, you've got to suffer if you and get some control of yourself. It ought to be painful. And I think it's just wonderful. You think of what it would do at a public health level if we could reduce weight on average in the population, you know, diabetes, heart problems. There's so many things related to weight. So so that's a, a long way of answering your question that I find it for most of these polygenic scores, if you knew you had a high genetic propensity to alcoholism, do you just say, oh, well, I'm going to be an alcoholic? No. You just say, if you drink as much as other people, you're at greater risk and you're not going to become an alcoholic unless you drink a lot of alcohol over a long period of time. So you do what we're all supposed to do. Take breaks from alcohol see how addicted you are to it, you know? So there's low-tech solutions to these things, but um, I think it gives us control. And if, aside from all of that, it does really seem to me that part of understanding yourself is understanding the extent to which genetics influences what you do. So um, mm. another... Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you entirely. I mean, the, the knowledge of one's genetic background and predisposition predispositions it doesn't need to result in fatalism because it enables agency by giving you the power and showing the necessity of this to control your environment rather than relegating yourself to a state of helplessness the one place that and maybe this isn't a disagreement but you referenced the the sorts of therapies that set your son-in-law back a couple of years i see these therapies as also being very useful in the sense that maybe they can help show you or give you the power to alter your environment. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I, I see that I more that as this. I would just say, you know, CBT, cognitive behavior therapies, they're great. We all ought to do it. It's sort of like, you know, healthy thinking. But um, the, the essence of Freudian psychoanalytic therapy really does have this theory of your pro you, to solve your problems now, you've got to go back to your childhood and resolve these conflicts. And I think that's counterproductive. I, don't, I just don't think the evidence is there. It's good to have a professional handholder to think about your life and what you're doing. But um, ruminating about the past and your parents' treatment, I think the evidence isn't good that it's helpful. But I think therapy is great in the in the CBT sort of way, cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness. I, you know, I'm a big fan of mindfulness. So, I, yeah, I didn't mean that to be anti-therapeutic at all, but just kind of anti-psychoanalytic. 
Well, I think this is a good time to get more into the interaction between genetics and environment. And another thing that you wrote about in, in Blueprint that I found extraordinarily unintuitive that it would be very worthwhile to unpack is that the environment makes siblings reared in the same family just as different as those raised in different families. And this on it on the surface doesn't seem like it would make sense at all. So I wanted to ask if we could get into detail on this. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's another one of those un unintuitive sorts of findings, you know. It's certainly not something your grandmother would have told you. And uh behavioral genetic quantitative genetics began by try to trying to separate nature and nurture in familial resemblance. That's why you have adoption studies and twin studies. But what we found is that familial resemblance, what runs in families, runs in families for reasons of DNA. It's all due to nature. So with weight, do you remember the example with the adoption studies, for example? Kids um, resemble their parents, but only if they share genes. So adoptive parents and adopted kids correlate zero for weight. Birth parents and their adopted away kids correlate just as much as parents and offspring who live together in the same family. So that suggests that genetics accounts for family resemblance. But the environment's important because heritabilities aren't 100%, they're 50% on average. So what is that environmental, that is non-genetic influence? It's not nurture. It's not systematic effects of the family environment. It's what we called in, ninth, in our paper in 1981, non-shared environment. It's not this shared nurture, the effect of growing up with people and having parents, the same parents, for example. Whatever it is, the environment's making two kids in the same family no more similar than just kids at random in the population. So then the question is, well, what are those influences? But do you see what I mean, though, that the environmental influences aren't the ones we always thought were important? That is, shared family environments, the shared effects of parents. Now, um, it's important to distinguish here between events and, and uh, effects, influences. So divorce, for example, two kids growing up in a fam same family, if their parents get divorced, that event is shared by them. But we know from hundreds of studies that the effect of divorce on kids in a family can be very different. In fact, it often is very different. So we're talking about the effects of environment make two kids in a same family different, not similar. And I'm wondering if like, this relates back to the story of your granddaughter and her appreciation for words and how they have a very different effect on her than they do on your other grandchildren. Is the reason that the effect on of divorce on kids in a family is very different, even if the event itself is the same, is because the the children themselves have different genes and they the, the genes then result in their interacting with the events and being shaped by them very differently? Yeah, exactly right. That's one of the most I think exciting findings in behavioral genetics, again, because it's counterintuitive. Almost all of the environmental- yeah, It does though, it does raise a question though, that do, do twins respond to divorce the same way? Identical twins. 
Yeah, but they don't because it's not 100% heritable. But in fact, identical twins respond more similar to the divorce than do fraternal twins. So, um, you know, so this is part of this huge area called the nature of nurture. And from the eight, 1980s, I accidentally put an environmental measure, a parenting measure, into our behavioral genetic design. And I found it's showing significant genetic influence. And, and it was a mistake, I thought. But then I started thinking about it and said, the environments that we use in psychology are not measures of the environment out there independent of us. Like the most widely used measures are like life events measures, for example. And the top items there are things like uh, having financial problems, getting in conflicts with people, having trouble with romantic relationships. Well, this is not the environment out there independent of us. This is the environment that we help create. And that's where the genetics comes in because all behavior is heritable. And so our response to the environment, our interaction with the environment also shows genetic influence. So the bottom line is that if you take all the measures we use in the environmental measures that have been studied, like parenting measures, life events, social support, um, all these measures, the on average, they're 25% heritable, not 50% like behavior, but significantly and substantially due to genetic influences. So that's um, the nature of nurture. And, uh, and that is partly responsible for why when you correlate something like parenting with kids' outcomes, you, it's, it's almost hard to resist the temptation to interpret that correlation causally. Even though we know correlation does not imply causation, it's hard to say. Parents who read a lot to their kids have kids who read better when they go to school. So you say, well, sure, you know, that's straight environment. But actually, it's substantially due to genetic factors. Because who are the parents that read a lot? Who are, uh, who are the kids who like to read? Which families have books in their home? Um, it's an interesting thing that uh, when I first came to England 30 years ago, the government at that time wanted to improve kids' reading ability. And so they knew there's a correlation between books in the home and how well kids read when they get to school. So they really were going to go out and just deliver a lot of books to homes. You know, maybe that would have helped, but it assumes that that correlation is all environmental, but it's clearly not. Um, DNA doesn't make books go on the shelves in a house but parents do, and which parents have a lot of books in their house. And then because their kids are genetically related to them, those kids are going to be more likely to like to read. You know, increasingly, I think it's, it's um, appetite as well as aptitude. You know, it isn't just neural hardwiring to make you like to read. It, it's more a matter of what you like to do, and you tend to like to do things you're good at. And I, so you get into this virtuous cycle of gene environment correlation where you then read more and more and get better at it and you hang out with people who are kind of verbally oriented so that's um the nature of nurture which i think is related to the question you started here <laughs> so with our last uh chunk of time that we have we have thus far mainly focused on intelligence that we talked a little bit about weight but of course there's a huge 
wealth of research on the various behavioral traits that are hereditary or heritable. And I thought we might as well talk about some of the biggest ones, the most surprising ones, the most important ones, and how they're heritable. So what comes to mind when you when you think about that? Yeah, well, the backing up a bit, um, I think it's amazing that we've gone from the 70s, where I, when I started graduate school, where nothing was thought to be heritable, to now recognizing right. that everything is heritable. In fact, if you were to sometimes have a PhD student say, oh, well, this trait hasn't been studied. Maybe we should do a genetic study to see if it's heritable. You're wasting your time. If that's all you want to know is I can tell you it's going to be heritable. You need to ask more interesting questions like the developmental questions or interactions with the environment. So um, I think that is important to mention. You know, everything is heritable. But now you're, you're asking about what, what's most surprising. I think what surprised people the most was that the two things you just mentioned. One is the nature of nurture, that is environmental measures that we use in psychology and assume they're environmental because we call them environmental, that they must be environmental, but they actually all show genetic influence. I think that's an amazing finding. And then you start to think about why, and that's interesting. You know, it's because they're not measures of the environment out there. They're measures of our experience with the environment and our genetic propensities are part of that. And then the other one that was very interesting, I think, is this non-shared environment. That's, that's not a genetic finding. That's saying genetics helps us understand about the environment. Um, but the, the thing well, about... Maybe, maybe, another question, maybe another question that might better get at something novel for me and our listeners is what are the specific dimensions of say personality that have been isolated and determined to be heritable so is this something like things like general disposition to being happy or angry or concerned about others what are the sorts of dimensions of personality that have been studied like this yeah um well first of all though everything's heritable so there's not going to be much in it. I can tell you, just like I can say vocabulary is more highly heritable than memory, but they're still massively heritable, you know, and the same thing's true with personality. There's some aspects of personality, like I studied infancy um, in temperament and shyness. We, listeners might be surprised to hear is one of the more highly heritable temperamental traits in infancy. And, um, but on the whole, what's been studied in personality is often summarized as the big five with that factors. You know, there are hundreds of traits that have been studied. You know, you started mentioning some of them, but they, they kind of go together in five packages and it goes with the acronym OCEAN. O is for, um, <laughs> why am I blocking on this? Um, Oh, openness to experience. It means like curiosity and that sort of thing. And C is uh, conscientiousness, which is related, say, to school achievement. And E and N are the big two of the big five, extroversion and neuroticism. And extroversion is broader than just being sociable. It has to do with being outgoing, sort of dominant. It incorporates a lot of traits. And neuroticism isn't being neurotic. It has to do with emotional lability. 
you know, ups and downs and that sort of thing. And when you talk about anxiety, neuroticism is essentially, uh, its psychopathology component is anxiety. And that is extremely highly, it's almost the same thing genetically as depression. But that could be because some people said, you know, you were saying you experienced both anxiety and depression in your family. But in some ways, George Brown in, psych in England has been famous for saying, anxiety almost always precedes depression. But, you know, be that as it may, they're highly genetically correlated. So what did I miss? O uh, is openness to experience. C, conscientiousness. E, extroversion. Uh, A is um, something. <laughs> Neurot and N is neuroticism. Agreeableness. A is agreeableness. And the reason that didn't come to mind is I always, it, for my dissertation back in 1974, I wanted to come up with traits that weren't heritable. So I asked psychologists, what do you think wouldn't be heritable? And they would come up, a lot of them mentioned things like kindness, agreeableness, you know, and it does seem to me that something parents, you know, like I value that a lot in my kids. And so I thought that wasn't going to be heritable. It turns out it's just as heritable as everything else. So there's a little bit of evidence extroversion and neuroticism are a bit more heritable than these others, but there's not much in it. The larger point is they're all heritable. Hmm. Wow. Well, I think the, the right note to end on then is this paper that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Sorry, the, the co-host getting involved again. And that is the next 10 years, what you're expecting from behavioral genomics and where the research is going. Right. Um, well, you can answer that at a lot of different levels, but conceptually, one of the big advances, I think, is that it's going to really um, change the way we think about psychiatric disorders. So I, th I think that's a big one for the reasons we talked about, that the current nosology of psychiatry is so completely unrelated to the genetic architecture. And genes aren't everything, but the point of my book Blueprint is that it's the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals. The environment's important, but this non-shared environment we talked about, I think, is probably mostly random, that is, non-systematic influences. So that for parents and ourselves, the a good way of, uh, well, I won't get too far off in this, but um, uh, it's important to think about genetics as the major systematic force making us who we are, and that the environment's important, but it's not the systematic effects of family environment that we call nurture. It, it's this non-shared environment that's probably mostly random. So it's important to say that the genetic architecture of psychiatric disorders is not much related to the way we diagnose disorders. And, and furthermore, that they're not diagnoses anyway, they're dimensions. And there's implications for treatment, as well as for diagnosis, to realize that they're quantitative dimensions, rather than qualitatively distinct disorders. Which I think is also important too, if, if you have a disorder, I mean, it's not like those schizophrenics and us normal people. We all have thousands of genetic uh, influences towards schizophrenia because there's tens of thousands of DNA differences involved. 
So it's just a quantitative thing of how many you have, and then also interactions with the environment as well. So that psychiatric change, I think, is going to be very important. But from my point of view, the big question is this missing heritability. And we know that the effect sizes in these genome-wide association studies are so small that it means we need bigger and bigger studies. And we're talking about millions of people. So the most powerful polygenic score we have now, that is where you put together these thousands of DNA differences to predict behavior, you get a single number, a polygenic score. That's where I have this very high polygenic score for weight, for example. The most powerful one we have is for educational achievement, which is kind of cool in a way because education has been the backwater of genetics. It's like psychology 30 years ago, where a lot of people in education still completely deny the importance of genetics. So we can predict 15% of the variance in how well kids will do on these national exams that we have at age 16 at the end of compulsory education in the UK. 15% of the variance. And the thing about DNA is you can predict that from birth as well. So you could begin to do what all of medicine is doing. It's trying to predict problems like heart attacks before they occur so that you can prevent them. Because as Benjamin Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And economically, socially, personally, in every way, it's got to be better to prevent a heart attack rather than waiting until you have one and then trying to fix it. So going from uh, curing problems to preventing and predicting them is, I think, the strong point for DNA because DNA is the best early warning system we have because it doesn't change from the moment of conception. So the psychiatric disorders and thinking about dimensions rather than the disorders, and then the whole idea of shifting towards a predictive and prevention approach, I think, is where a lot of this is going to go. And so increasing the predictive power of these polygenic scores is very important. But I meant to say the most powerful polygenic score is the one for predicting educational achievement. And um, that came from a study of 3 million people. Because the bigger the sample, the more you can scoop up these very tiny effects reliably. I'm just hoping that there will be smarter ways to do this. And one of the big things coming along is whole genome sequencing. So instead of these SNP chips, where you get several hundred thousand DNA differences, if you sequence the whole genome of three billion bases, base pairs, that's the end of the story. That's all you inherit. So that used, up until a few years ago, was about $1,000 each, as opposed to a SNP chip, which was $50. But it's come down now to $300. So I think in the next few years, we're all going to have whole genome sequencing. I mean, they offer that already in Finland, Estonia, and they're trialing it in the UK now for medical reasons. So if you go into the hospital in those countries, they'll ask, do you, when we get your blood, do you want us to do a whole genome scan? And, you know, most people would say, why not? They won't they won't give you the information like a direct-to-consumer testing company will do, but they'll tell you if there's actionable genetic risks. You know, So that, I think, is going to be an important direction for research. And for psychologists, it's going to 
you keep your eye on the medical area because that's where all the money is. And, you know, that's where it's clear that the medical burden in society is not these single gene disorders. That maybe is 5% of the burden. And as I say, if you have a gene for Huntington's disease, that's bad news. But, you know, from a public health point of view, most of the medical burden is just like these psychological traits, complex traits, common disorders. So I think... Um, those are three examples of the ways in which the genome revolution is going to occur. What interests me are the more technological things, but I don't think they're worth explaining to people because they probably wouldn't interest them much anyway. But the cool thing about this area is things are always coming out of the blue, you know? And um, I tell my PhD students, I had some new ones starting now at the beginning of the academic year, that my hope is we have you have to come up with a plan for what they're going to do on their PhD. But my hope is their dissertation has nothing to do with what they said they were going to do. Because what we want to do is to be able to capitalize on all the emerging technologies that are coming along and to do something new and cool rather than just kind of saying, well, I'm going to turn the crank a bit on what we already know we can do. So it's a very exciting field, and I'm never going to be able to retire at this rate. But, of course, I don't. I have no, good. no inclination to want to retire because it's just too much fun. Mm -hmm. Well, something you, you didn't mention that I wanted to ask about, since it was so important to our conversation, is if this evolving field of behavioral genomics is poised in any particular particularly fascinating, fascinating way to help us better understand this interaction between genetics and environment. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's lots of examples of that. Um, I'm, I've tried several times to get money for this, and I know it's ethically a little bit on the borderline. But gr growing up in a poor family in Chicago, um, I always did well at school, and I was in a school system that help me get scholarships to go to university and all of that. But if you can predict kids who are going to have problems like reading problems, you don't have to wait till they, we can predict about 10% of the variance in reading. Now it's not a hundred percent, but reading is quite highly heritable, maybe 60% heritable, but we can today predict 10% of the variance in reading. So that means you can predict what we call reading disability or dyslexia, which is another one of these hoaxes, you know, it's medicalizing these things to pretend reading disability is a real thing. It's an etiologically distinct disorder. It's not. Kids have reading problems, but what's to be gained by medicalizing it and pretending it's an etiologically distinct disorder? My child has dyslexia. No, your kid has some reading problems. It might be a lot of reasons for that, but we can predict which kids are going to have reading problems. And the way we know now is you wait till kids get to school and after a year or two, they're doing poorly at reading. And you can help them learn to read, but it's hard. Once Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, it's hard to put them back together again. There's a lot of collateral damage once kids start failing at school. So if you can predict who's going to have reading problems, there are good language interventions in, in early childhood before kids learn to read that will then help kids read when they get to school so they don't have to fail. And the trouble with these interventions is the ones that work, other than these gimmicks like growth mindset, um, the ones that work are expensive and intensive. 
So you've got to target it for certain kids. But the neat thing about it is there can't be any harm in that. You know, giving kids a language intervention that will help prevent reading problems when they get to school. So um, I, I'm particularly interested in a bigger issue, and that is using these polygenic scores to help us identify kids from the most socially disadvantaged environments who have the genetic goods and to help them capitalize on their goods because it's a it's a, a wasted part of our intellectual capital in society because kids from the worst socioeconomic environments will go to schools that aren't very good and they'll they're just much less likely to succeed but with a bit of a leg up you might be able to help them realize their potential and so that's something that just interests me because I grew up in inner city Chicago in a poor family where nobody of my, all my cousins, nobody, my parents, my sister, nobody went to university. And I didn't even know what it was. I'd never even heard of graduate school. The only reason I went to graduate school is I had this wonderful advisor who said, you know, you really ought to think about graduate school. And I had no idea what it was. But then he said the magic words for a poor kid in Chicago, they pay you to go, you know, so... That's, that's why I went to graduate school, because I like being a student, and they would pay me to go to school. I didn't have to pay anything. You know, they paid me to go. So what's not to like? So uh, Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Enjoying yeah, <great>. it. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad they still but have I, I'm curious. Everything that you just described sounds, at least on the surface, to be extremely positive if you want to help less fortunate people with the tools of your research. So why is it, if you could put your finger on it, ethically borderline or perceived that way? Um, I think with the reading example, it's hard for people to deny that. You know, if you studied reading ability, people freak out. But, you know, reading disability because they think it's a disorder, although it's really not, it's somehow okay to try and fix that. But the example I mentioned with um, low socioeconomic status, um, it just makes people very uneasy, I think, to think about selecting kids on that basis and trying to help them um, realize their genetic potential. Uh, I can give you some counter arguments, which I've run into when people, I submit these grants that aren't funded to do that. You know, it's like, uh, but you, you're going to uh, mark that kid so the kid will be in a family with other kids. You're going to pick one kid and give them special advantages. That's a problem, they would say. And just the idea of DNA coming into contact with socioeconomic status, really, because some people think of that as the ultimate environmental measure. But do you know the main driver of the predictive power of socioeconomic status is educational attainment of the parents? And that is a highly heritable characteristic. So, we now know, I don't think it's controversial, but 10 years ago, if you said socioeconomic status is heritable like everything else, people would go nuts. But I think most people accept that now, that there's a strong heritable component to socioeconomic status. So those are sort most of psychologists or most uh, people in the public sphere? Because I would, okay, sociologists. Yeah. What, what would you say? Most psychologists would accept genetic influence on socioeconomic Well, I'm not status. a psychologist, but I would definitely say that if I polled the philosophy department at Stanford, for instance, or at least if I polled the graduate students in the philosophy department at Stanford, <laughs> Good I bet point. that uh, 
Yeah, I bet that one in, I mean, less than a percent of people would say that socioeconomic status is heritable on any level. So Did it's interesting that sociologists. Okay, what was the they would they would basically that? deny that it's heritable. They would just deny it flat out. But what what did you say about no, Stanford? No, no. Grad- Stanford graduate students would say that it is not heritable, but uh, which is interesting because the sociologists would apparently say that it is. So it just reflects. Ah, uh, okay. Interesting. Something that the the public is not aware of about the research. Well, I find, you know, you've mentioned this before about the public acceptance. Very early on, you said, well, the public often has trouble with this. Well, when my book Blueprint came out, I wanted to give public lectures. I gave 30, 40 public sort of lectures. And I was a bit nervous, you know, about the reaction. But I found that the public is actually very accepting of genetic influence, even on something like socioeconomic status. They, they, the basic reaction I get is, I didn't know about any of that. It's not that they're antagonistic, whereas the antagonism I found more in academia, you know, especially in education, in so in sociology back then. I agree that sociology for a while it was unclear whether it was going to remain a, a science, but I think it has resolved itself as a science. And if if it's scientific, you expect data to rule in the end. To people, people would accept data. Um, so I, I, I was really quite uh, um, pleased to find that there was, I got very little negativity, very little hostility about talking to public groups and saying that genetics is the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe the cultural milieu is just different in the UK than it is here at this point. But I would guess that if you asked uh, most of the people on campus what the dominant factors are in socioeconomic status, they would probably refer you to um, structural racism or capitalism or. Uh, I guess these sorts of so features of society rather than genetics. Yeah. But, you know, it's empirical and twin and adoption studies converge on the conclusion that socioeconomic status is at least 40% heritable. And the educational component of it is probably even more heritable. Then income is less heritable, which kind of makes sense to me. I mean, professors don't make much money compared to other people. Um, but uh, it, it, it's interesting that you say that. I, I'm surprised. I thought you were going to say that uh, graduate students at Stanford would all say, oh, yeah, it's, it's heritable. <laughs> so that's interesting. It's an empirical question, isn't it? I, I have done surveys of people, not um, so much in academia, but maybe it would be time to do it again. The ones I did of the public and teachers. Teachers I find surprising. You know, they get nothing about genetics in their training to be a teacher, and yet they... Uh, accept genetic influence just as much as other members of the public do, maybe even more so. Because if you stand up and teach 30 kids, you can't help but notice that some of them just take off with the learning. You almost just have to stay out of their way, whereas other kids are going to need a lot more help to um, reach some minimal levels of literacy and numeracy that they need to survive in our 
increasingly technological society. Well, Robert, this has been great. As we as we discussed beforehand, this is absolutely terra incognita for the show. So I am so glad that you took the time to broach it with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.